Hello and a very warm welcome to another edition of Passions and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Paul Arnold. So I'm gonna not going to waste any time, I'm just going to go straight over to Paul to say, Paul, welcome to Passions, what's your passion? Thanks Phil, nice to meet you and nice to meet everyone. Uh, my passion is music and um, I make my living as a music composer for multimedia, so that means um, film, TV, and video games. I started off in video games, and over the years, I've kind of uh, moved across to film and TV as well. And I guess I find myself as a composer rather than um, a gigging musician, because I never really had the, the passion to commit the hours and hours and hours per day of practice that you need to do on very detailed things like playing scales and so on just bored me and so I, I didn't find myself desperately wanting to go into performance and composition just really suited me because um, I sit I sit alone in this room a lot of the time um, with a very powerful computer and, and I'm able to realize my ideas and my demos all through that and the computer plays everything back for me so I have to play things in on the keyboard um, and sometimes on the guitar but on the whole, um, I don't perform. I just sort of invent the musical idea and other people play for me. Brilliant. So um, in terms of um, very early on then, I'm not talking about when you were one, but when you were you know, <laughs> at school and you're getting into school, were you really interested in music? Did you want to play instruments, musical instruments? And just mm. as just as more as important did you see yourself did you have ambition and passion to be a musician in those days i can't imagine you sitting there at 17 saying i want to be a composer no, or, that, or, or maybe that was the case no actually that that didn't happen you're right um i mean if we go right the way back to when i was doing gcse's i found myself outside the the room uh, the music room quite a lot because i used to mess around me and, me and my best mate Dave used to mess about far too much and I used to get chucked out because our music lessons were really just sort of singing along to our, our, our music teacher playing the piano and singing Beatles songs and not really my idea of learning music and I found it dull without limitation so I actually dropped music at GCSE level and and then I was playing trumpet in the school band so from middle school i've been given the opportunity to learn an instrument and uh, i'd actually wanted to play the clarinet and they hadn't got any left so so i sort of <laughs> okay what, what have you got left then there, there was a tuba i think there was a there was a trombone i was thinking oh god that's going to be heavy to carry oh they've got a trumpet oh right, i'll have the trumpet then if that's so it's a weird kind of by default end up playing the trumpet just because it was the smallest instrument they got left in the storeroom. And I started learning. And then when I went up to the high school, as luck would have it, there, were, there was a school band, actually a very decent school band. And so I joined the school band and actually that really started to create a passion in me. I found myself becoming very ambitious at that point with that instrument because I was pretty poor. And for the first few rehearsals, I barely played a note. I couldn't sight read fast enough to read the music that was in front of me. And I was playing sort of third trumpet. 
and that so there were two separate desks of trumpets above and of course the superstars were the trumpet one section who were playing all the melodies and all the really nice stuff and the solos and you know the important guys in the band and of course i wanted to be there i didn't want to be here anymore so we got all of the music and i practiced and practiced and practiced and you know it really started to um, get my creative juices flowing and at the same at the same time it was not so we go back a little bit my mom and dad had, had sort of gotten me into piano lessons so again i'd gone through grades one two four on the piano and whilst i could play i was not a great pianist by any stretch of the imagination i could play the piano but i uh, got nothing from it again classical music was not really for me um i didn't feel inspired playing most of the music that was put in front of me and uh, I always wanted to play rock and pop music, really. And of course, you're not really learning that going through your grades. You're learning how to play chromatic scales up and down and so on. Um, so good grounding. And it you know, gave me some finger independency and, and made me feel comfortable with a keyboard. But not at all what I wanted to do. So I dropped my piano lessons. So sort of in a, in a weird place where I love the school band. I was I was ambitious and wanted to progress there um i had a background in playing the piano but uh I'd, had stopped and um that was sort of where it was so at that stage and even when i got up to sit form i wasn't that sure about what i wanted to do with my life or or whether i even saw myself doing anything with music um you know you you sort of i have to admit i stumbled around a bit and uh, most most of my friends were going off to university and we were still at a stage where they paid a grant and they paid the the um tuition fees Please, so i yeah. i didn't have mm -hmm. to run up a huge debt in order to to go to university yeah. and so i guess it was more a case of rather than make a decision i could just do that so i did do that and then actually i did the same thing again i did a master's degree for the same kind of for the same reason because just didn't really know what to do and i also got very lucky with a master's degree because i applied for a music technology course at york university and there were six scholarships available and i was very fortunate enough to get one of them so it sort of made the decision for me because it would have been quite a big debt again to get and then suddenly the science and engineering research council were giving me the money to pay my tuition fees and a maintenance grant to keep me there why wouldn't I? So, um, so what was what was technology, music technology? What was it like then? Because you won't know this, but I kind of um, I, I'd always wanted to play a musical instrument like most people. But mm. I messed around with the drums and and then something happened that changed everything. And that was the, the synthesizer came out. Yeah. And you didn't have to have your fingers bleeding at the ends for like you said for practicing you yeah just pressed exactly. a few buttons and then of course as we got into the technology development we got into sequences and samplers and all this kind of thing yeah uh, so you know it, it was as has it been amazing to you just how tech music technologies ex, uh, has uh, grown and developed in the last 20 20 30 years yeah, yeah. i mean it's a, it's an important statement to make because it really has changed completely 
we've gone from sort of in the 80s and probably the early 90s in order to make a, a good quality recording you would need to go to a, a very high-end studio pay a lot of money um and you'd still have to be a pretty good performer to play it well to get it you know to get a good recording and everything in time and now uh, i mean i use cubase here and you can edit i mean as long as the notes sound clean if the, if it's all a bit out of time i can put it exactly in time if i'm playing on the guitar or so i can make it all absolutely perfectly in time and if i'm using midi from the keyboard which is basically what i do you're just recording information about notes start this C3 at this point and play it until this point and hit it this hard. That's all you're doing. So you can move those, they're just little blocks on a screen and you can move them around and change the pitch and do do anything you want. So I, I guess this is also feeds into my my need to not practice because because <laughs> actually <laughs> I can I can record it in really badly and then make it sound very good by just tidying it up and getting rid of all the wrong notes and so on. And I can program things too. So, so nowadays, would you say it is a lot more about being a computer programmer? I don't want to oversimplify it, but is there a strong element of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's fair. It's a fair statement to make. Mm. I mean, you can't come into it without any sort of musical knowledge or acumen and, and think that you're going to, you know, bosh out some masterpiece that's not going to work either it's definitely a blend of skills and i mean over the years i guess we've we've honed our skills and it's an ever changing changing beast so i talked about the 80s and the 90s and then when we started writing music on the uh, the medieval series of games in the late 90s we just started touching upon the the the, the very early stages of synthesizing orchestral recordings so none of it was live but we're trying to make it sound as realistic as possible uh, as an orchestra might. And, you know, we got very, very into the science of that, positioning all the instruments in the exact place they would be in the orchestra, changing the amount of reverb, depending on whether they're at the front or at the back of the, the orchestra. So wow. giving the recording some depth. And that was in the yeah. late 90s. Now you buy a library and straight off the bat, everything's positioned exactly where it should be. Um, you still have to do the reverb side of it, but um, it's, you know, a lot of that work's been been done for you. And the other thing as well, I'd say is um, knowing the ranges of the instruments, like, for example, a, a violin will play a G below middle C, right, well, right the way up at three or three and a half octaves above. It's got a huge range. But you don't need to know those ranges anymore because the, all of the libraries don't play above the note a violin can play very helpful when you when you're taking your music to be orchestrated you don't look like an idiot because you've got <laughs> notes the instrument can't play so again you know when when you think back to the days of Mendelssohn and Beethoven and you know they had all that knowledge in their heads because there was no tech to help them and you know in some ways it's remarkable what they what they did, particularly in Beethoven's case, who did an awful lot of that composition without the ability to hear any of it. So, you know, it really, truly remarkable what they could do. And actually, in some ways, our job's a lot easier because I get to demo what my stuff's going to sound like before it ever goes to an orchestrator and then a, a copyist and an orchestra. I get to hear exactly really what it's going to sound like. And if the voicings or the 
or some of the notes I've used are a bit weird, I can fix it before it goes to any of any of those guys. And um, the, the tech's been really, really helpful in the way that it's evolved. But, you know, at the same time, each and every new library of, say, strings that comes out, there's a new layer of complexity that comes with it. And you have to learn how to, how to deal with that technically so that you're not spending hours and hours and hours just working out how the library works. You know, I, I want to get the composition down. So I, I don't want to be spending hours and hours drawing in program changes and modulation curves and so on. I just want to write the notes and get it sounding good as, as quickly as possible. Brilliant. So, of course, um, gaming came along. Now, obviously, I don't think anybody could have ever envisaged. I mean, you're, you're probably similar age to me, I guess, and uh, you probably remember back in the days of <laughs> back in the days of ZX Spectrum and was it the Commodore sixty four and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, you know what? What uh, in, from a gaming point of view, how did you get into gaming and providing music scores for gaming, which must be a massive industry now in its own right? Is, is that a reasonable assumption? It is. I have to. I have to confess. I've never been a massive gamer. Not in the way that I mean. Some of my friends are obsessive gamers, and you know, every single night, hours and hours of their time are committed to playing games. That's not really the case with me. It's something that I kind of dip into and and come out of periodically. I I get periodically obsessed with something, and then play it to death, and then you know, and then I don't really touch it for ages. My business partner's much more of an obsessive gamer than, than I am. He absolutely adores playing games and it's a big part of his life. Um, but in terms of how I got into it, it was it was literally a, after I finished my master's degree at York, I really wanted a job in music. <coughs> and I did what every um, self-respecting, jobbing composer musician did, which was I couldn't I couldn't think of anything else but to write a letter to the BBC. I, I felt like I was doing myself a favour. Of course, it went in the bin, you know, straight away because I hadn't got a clue what I was doing or who I was addressing it to or anything. And this was all sort of pre-Google and all of that. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of information out there to, to find the right person. But I just felt like, OK, I've given myself a shot. Actually, I hadn't not 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 even beginning to give myself a shot. I applied for lots of graduate jobs and I actually got a job as a relational database programming uh, uh, programmer, sorry. And I was working um, for English Heritage, actually, based in, in central London. I, as a third party producer, I worked for a company in Woking who were working for them. And I did that for three months. But of course, that was never my dream. That was never my passion. And I... I did it because I couldn't really think of anything else to do. And I was very fortunate. Again, I have to say a very fortunate turn of events. Um, one of my friends from my university course in York had applied for a job at a computer games company here in Cambridge. And he called me up to say that he was about to buy a house um, miles and miles away in Hampshire. And he said, you know, I don't want to go for this interview because if I get the job, it's going to create a really difficult dilemma for me. So I think I'm going to tell him, no, I'm not going to go for the interview. Do you want to go instead? And, you know, here's the contact details, call them up. So I did and I sent my details over and uh, 
rather unfortunately um my my friend's house fell through and he came for, he came for the interview anyway and i got, and i got the job which was awful and we're still good friends to this day but of course that was awful i felt terrible about it um and uh, he's always been very very generous about you know it's fine that job was suited to you it you know wasn't really for me but of course i always felt bad about that um but it's funny how something like that you know takes your life in such a totally different direction yeah yeah i'm a, I'm a big fan i talk to a lot of clients about taking massive action because usually if you take massive action in, and, and and do interesting things interesting things happen um yeah. and i do i do tend to believe that very much okay i'll tell you what we'll do it would be remiss of me wouldn't it not to play a bit of uh, one of your music tracks there's probably millions to choose from uh but yeah. uh, I, I, when i was having a quick listen to some of the music on the web on your website and um the first one actually i really quite like which is something magical so, oh yeah that... well, tell me a bit about that that track this track that was from a film called amsterdam and um it was the story of jack and the beanstalk set in amsterdam so jack and the greenstalk let's say and uh, a stoner comedy with that story so there it was a weed plant rather than a beanstalk and so on and it and it had howard marks in the film it was the last movie that howard marks ever ever shot before he died and we we did that i think that was 2014 and they said that they wanted uh, a, a big kind of uh, Disney magical uh, fantasy score. And so it was quite different because, you know, the images were all modern day and you, know, you could have scored it with heavy rock music. And actually they had rock music licensed tracks in there as well, but they wanted the score to be uh, much more of a fan, you know, fantasy style. So that's that was right up our street. So um we ended up writing that and the cue that you're about to play was the the bit of music where the green stalk grows whilst they're asleep stoned and then halfway through they wake up and see this giant green stalk growing in the middle of their coffee shop right okay well let's close our eyes and just to imagine we're leaning against the green stalk stoned and uh, this is the music <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, I, I, do you know, I absolutely love that. I just had to choose that. What I find fascinating, do you think that we underestimate just how much, how powerful music is in terms of the enjoyment of either, either a game or a movie? Do you think we underestimate? Do you think we almost like maybe even take it a bit for granted? Yeah, I, I mean, to some degree, that's kind of the point with a with a film, with a game. It has to sit in the background. It's not. In fact, we always say of the sort of the three audio elements that you get in all of these things, dialogue, sound effects and music. Music is always the third element in all of that, because it's the only one of those three that isn't part of the scene. It isn't actually present at the time when you record it. And so, of course, it's less important. The story comes through the dialogue, you know, and the characters interacting. The sound effects are very important because they bring a scene to life. They make it sound real um, and, and sometimes hyper real because that's something they do a lot is, you know, for example, in the Terminator movie, they very much exaggerated all of the leather sounds of his clothes. It made him sound more evil. And also guns are a classic. You know, the, the guns sound like cannons in in films and video games. They don't, If you actually heard the sound of a wolf, a PPK being shot, it's the very it sounds like a pop gun. It's very disappointing. So, of course, they they exaggerate the emotion of the sound to, to elicit a, an emotional response from you. Music also serves the same function. It, it can mislead, it can enhance and, and elevate your emotion in a particular moment. Um, and it does all of those things beautifully. But the thing is, it's, it's not part of the scene. It's kind of like um, uh, an emotional commentary throughout a movie telling you what to think or feel or misleading you into thinking and feeling the wrong thing. Um, and it and it does that incredibly well. But it's there to sit in the background. And so if it grabs your attention, like that cue, I, I love that cue. It's one of my favorite cues that, that we've done over the years. But it was still written to picture. It's frame accurate. It changes at very specific moments because the picture told us to. And right at the end, where it drops down into the, the cello pattern, um, that's because there was dialogue there. So you, you make space in the music to, to fit the dialogue in. Not, you know, otherwise the, the dubbing mixer is going to have to duck that down massively. And surely they did anyway. But, you know, you, you try to shape the music around the dialogue always. And always try to keep in mind what sound design is doing as well. If there's huge explosions going on all over the place, there's very little point in having massive music going on as well. You just They're going to be fighting each other all the way through. So we often kind of think about that when, for example, we, when we scored Brink, the video game in 2010, I think it was. Um, we kind of made a decision fairly early on that we weren't going to have music during the battle sequences because they were so full of sound already. And, you know, you're emotionally charged already that you, you don't need to have music in, in those moments. So we sort of use the music in a different way in that case and, and let it sort of drive the player forward when they weren't doing much, um, helping them to find their way around when they were exploring and using it more in that way than, than to drive the drama of the action sequences.
It's fascinating. So when when you actually uh, listen to or you you come across um, a music score for a movie and a very very popular movie that where the music score is just so brilliant or perceived as really brilliant mm. when you critique it do you kind of think yes that's brilliant or do you critique it and think actually i think i might be able to do a bit of a better job on that than <laughs> i try not to be so arrogant as to think that i could do better than you know john williams oh he's rubbish you know definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it was just lucky paul it was just lucky. <laughs> just right place right time well, I mind yeah. you, you say that he wrote Indiana Jones, Star Wars, E.T., Jurassic Park. I, I think there's something more to it than just that. He's he's got he's got an ear, hasn't he? We can say that. Um, I I mean I I I try not to compare what I do. I, I can appreciate the the skills and talents of other composers, and sometimes I really like it when it's totally different from what I would have done. You know, like occasionally I listen to a score and I wow that's that's really unusual it's very unexpected but you know nothing's right and nothing's wrong in this you yeah, know of course, of course. if you want to have you know polynesian nose flute music throughout the movie then why not you know it's it can do it can do its own job and give you a different effect and it's it tends to be the case of the dire the director often will have his own idea of how he wants a particular scene to go, sometimes how the score should go. Uh, I take you back to Medieval. Um, Chris Sorrell was the game designer on that. And right from the get-go, it was very clear as a strong reference in Nightmare Before Christmas. And so, um, you know, taking a leaf out of Danny Elfman's music uh, from Nightmare Before Christmas and also Edward Scissorhands and whatever, we immersed ourselves in that music and tried to listen to and 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 work out, you know, what what makes it work, what makes it do what it does, and then you know try to write something in that style, obviously without plagiarizing. Um, you know, that's that's the key thing. And of course, we're all heavily influenced by the things around us. I don't think anyone's hundred percent original anymore. Um, so. Yeah, I, f I find, I find with the scores that, that that we that we kind of do, I try not to, try not to compare or or, or imagine, you know, that I do it better, but I, d I do certainly appreciate the um, the skills of others and what they do, and and particularly when they go outside the box, and you, wow, you know, that was a very brave decision to do something like that. That's very different, and actually, sometimes you get rewarded with. I mean, actually, if we go back in time, it used to be that um, music for sports programs, for example, was all action and all about speed and power and, and whatever. And, you know, I think back to Grandstand and all the fast edits on the Grandstand theme and so on. It was brilliant. Mm. And then the, um, the music for the uh, World Cup in 1990 came along and they used Ness and Dorma. And then suddenly it was all slow motion shots, shots and all about the glory of sport. It was a real sort of pivotal moment for sports at that point because it took it in a very different direction. And I, th I think you have to you have to push the envelope to to discover new things, you know, because that was brilliant. And now it's been much copied in many areas. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I, I always like I always like to see someone doing something really obscure actually 
Did you think part of the motivation for you at all is the the idea of coming up with an absolutely genius, perfect score that just all the, you know, they say all the planets align, <laughs> you know, and suddenly you just sit back. I suppose that this must happen with, uh, with bands, you know. Yeah. I don't know, ABBA, for example, just off the top of my head, where they just sit down and they, I've, I've heard them say, um, I've heard sometimes, people say and i might have even been able that have said it like many others that you know they just knew it was going to be a hit and yeah. you always think that that you know that that magic pixie dust will land and it'll everything be it'll be perfect and you'll be getting baftas coming out of it do you ever think that might happen is that part of the the driver i'm, I'm quite confused actually because the baftas have not been coming thick and fast and you know to be quite frank all my scores are like that no no i'm joking <laughs> I wish, they, I wish they were. No, I'm, I mean, actually, there, there have been moments where, where you start writing something and you, you know you've hit upon something, you know, that there is that. And you do have those moments. I, I did um, a score for um, a short film like many, many, many years ago. I still think of that as being one of the best things I've, I've ever done because it was so simple. And... I did feel I, I, it seems a little bit ethereal to say, you know, a little, little bit out there. But as as I was kind of writing it, I almost felt like it was writing itself. Like I started hearing, oh, I did that, and it's like, oh, but what if it did? It has to do that on the melody. Oh yeah, that's right. And it and it started just presenting itself is the only way I can describe it. So th there are moments like that, and they're wonderful when they happen because you can be fairly sure you know if if you've got a really great feeling about it, it it has to start there you know i love what i've done here i can't wait to play it to everyone else that's a good that's a very good place to be i can't say that every demo is starts starts in that way quite a few times where you'll you'll do something yeah i'm not sure you know i'm not sure this is really where i want it to be going or they're not going to really be that impressed and so I've, what I find a lot of the time is it's, it's kind of a war of attrition with, with some of these compositions, particularly the orchestral ones that they take quite a long time to write and they're built in stages. So I'll, I'll sit down. I did one, another medieval sound alike piece recently, actually, um, just really for, for my own purposes, but I, I came up with a little chord progression and I, I knew it was in the right space. It was the right thing. It was, but it was just a piano part. You know, at that point, I don't imagine exactly how the, how the whole structure of the track's going to work, exactly what the melody is going to sound like. And I mean, sometimes I conceive a melody first. Sometimes it, in this case, it was a chord progression. And then I worked really hard on the mel melodic elements that didn't make any sense for quite a lot of the time. Little bits of it worked, but it was clear, oh, where that bit in bar five is a bit weird. And actually you have to trust your ears because what happens is your ears play tricks on you constantly throughout the process. So you sit and listen to something over and over and over again, and your ear just becomes in tune with it. It's, it's, it accepts it and it's okay. And you even convince yourself it's good. You go and have a cup of tea and you come back and you start, oh my God, what's happened? You know, the, the <laughs> composition pixies come in and destroyed everything. What's, it's really strange. Yeah. And you yeah. get that. 
and and that first listening is your first objective moment with it and that's the one you have to trust so if your ears telling you in that moment this isn't really working well it's not working well actually you know and conversely the opposite happens sometimes when i'm doing a demo oh god i'm not sure about this it's not really doing it for me okay you go out and you come back an hour or so later and you put it on you go, actually that's not that's not too bad okay and and then you start hearing other things sometimes or you, you know it is or you feel that you're inspired by another piece of music sound a bit like it and you, and you oh god i never noticed that and off you go and so it can work both ways where, where would you say you get your inspiration from i know it could, could well be everywhere and ev anywhere and everywhere but is there any particular places where you think, yeah, I probably get an awful lot of inspiration from there or there or? Yeah, I mean, the, I grew up listening to rock music. I was massively into rock music from uh, the, the mid 80s. So, you know, all those hair metal bands of Bon Jovi and Europe and all that sort of stuff. I was going to see concerts of, of, of that kind of music so i always idolized the virtuosic guitar playing and riff based music and so on so I, all of that stuff is still a big influence on me and i, I still like sort of repetitive repeating patterns what we, what we call an ostinato in a classical piece i i love that and i and i find that to be very effective also they're very good for earworms that you know they get into your head and you can't you can't get them out um so that has always been an influence for me. And the other thing I'd say, something that I've always particularly liked is changing key and using key changes as a way of adding drama. And this is something that I learned at university that I, I was sort of doing it. And I and I'd, I spent a lot of time, I, I told you I quit my piano lessons. Um, if we go back to that time I was at school, one of, the, one of the girls who played in the school band who was an oboe player was I felt she was playing piano one day and she was playing a, a, a rock piece by Hart called Alone. I don't know if you remember that song from back in the mid 80s. Yes. Playing it on the piano. And first of all, you're playing the piano, but you're an over. What's going on? Uh, and secondly, you have to show me how to play that because I want to play. It. So she taught me, it is pretty simple. She taught me how to play the, sort of the verse. But she didn't know how to play the bridge and the and the um, the chorus, so I took a tape player and I stuck it on the top of my piano and I rewound and played it and just trial and error because I had nothing else to go on, no knowledge of music theory as such and whatever. I just trial and error. I found the notes, I found it, and I, and I was getting it closer and closer. It took ages, considering it's such a simple piece. It took me a really long time. I learned more doing that than probably I did at university, I have to say, because um, the knowledge of chords and chord progressions and then key changes and so on, because that song does a key change into the chorus, for example. And it introduced me to that world of modulation. So going back then to university and we, we were looking at the sonata form, which is the, 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 the structure that they use for the first movement of a symphony. And what they usually have is a sort of a statement of a theme and maybe a second theme. Then they have a development section that they call that the, the exposition. Then there's the development section where the composer will take the theme, develop the theme and use lots and lots of key changes and stuff to add drama. And then you get the final recapitulation of the theme restated back in the original key. 
but this middle section you know all the gloves are off all the rules are out the window and you can do whatever you want in that bit and you know you listen to the genius of, of beethoven doing doing that it was just remarkable and you see how far removed they can go in the in the keys i found that very inspiring and so um and i learned about diminished chords as well and without getting into uh really heavy music theory there's a very clever technique using diminished chords where there's four notes in the chord if you drop any one of them by just one semitone it creates a chord five in a new key and you can use that to modulate to change and i learned this at university and it was a real light bulb moment for me when i oh my god i never i never noticed that and i use that all the time <laughs> things. brilliant love it so inspiration comes from so many different places as you say yeah. it's practically everywhere but you can never deny the things that you grew up listening to in my case with the rock music and so on and and of course education helps you know if you know a little bit it goes a long way yeah absolutely okay well i'm going to finish off then just by um asking you put you on the spot a little bit maybe you could say um in terms of um whether it's young people or maybe even people thinking that uh, they really didn't want to be a lawyer after all if they wanted to become get into composing and and develop a career in it etc what what's kind of advice would you would you give people who are, are kind of quite inspired by the thought of it well uh one thing that that we've discovered over the years is that you know people hire people and being nice humble not not too arrogant not too self-assured but also not too unconfident you have to find a good balance in the middle and put yourself in positions where you can meet people and and start to build relationships that's that's how we found that we that we've managed to get work and move between industries and i can give you one little story about how we got into tv um, I'd gone to a number of different uh, networking events and things in London. We'd, we'd started to build up a catalogue of music in, in video games. And as I say, we'd done um, the medieval series. Turned out to be very crucial. So I have to say that was fortunate for us. And not everybody's fortunate enough to have, you know, that catalogue. But um, I went to a networking event in London. I'd, I'd been trying to cold call TV companies and nobody's interested. You get put through to the the uh, personal assistant and usually that personal assistant will tell you to send in a show reel or something like that complete waste of time it goes on a shelf probably never listened to somebody somewhere has probably got a story where they sent a show reel in and they got picked <laughs> I, I would imagine it's very few and far between yeah and and so not something we really wanted to spend a lot of our time doing and you can fall into the trap of thinking that by sending out loads of reels like that with loads of TV companies, you've got some skin in the game. But the truth is, you probably haven't at all. So instead, <coughs> because I was I was reaching a bit of a dead end with all of that, I saw that there was a networking event. They called it a pitching event in London <coughs> where you could go along and pitch your TV idea to TV executives and they would give you um feedback on how uh, uh, on how good your pitch was and how good your star was and how you could improve it and you know if the tv show was good enough i guess they might have taken you on and and off you go of course i didn't have a tv idea i wanted to sell me 
not that's not a TV idea, but it was a great chance to actually get some face time with people. And so we were in this room and there was a drama table and a light entertainment table and a kids TV table and a music TV table. And OK, music TV, not helpful for us. You know, the music's kind of been done for that one. So, you know, the other tables possible are just more more randomly than anything. I went to the light entertainment table and uh, I met some people who'd worked on The Weakest Link and things like that, but actually people in the business. And um, specifically, we met a guy called Andy Brierton. And this is going back to 2006, I think it was. And I met him and he'd, he'd been one of the, he conceived the idea of the weakest link and also um, eggheads. And, you know, so it was him and, and a couple of other people involved in that. And so purely by chance. And at that point, I wasn't really telling people that we wrote music for video games. I felt like there was a negative uh, connotation attached to video games. So people were still thinking it was Pac-Man and Star Wars, uh, yeah. Space Invaders, sorry. And so what instead, I, I wasn't going to tell him, but then he, I think he mentioned that he played video games. And so I mentioned Medieval. He went, oh my God, I played, I played that game. I love that game. And okay, the door opened and <clears throat> we became friends. <clears throat> and it took another four years, but we worked together on a show called The King is Dead. And now I can pretty much trace all the people that we know in TV in one way or another back to that original meeting and it all sort of stemmed through him so you know that was skirting around the subject to answer your question i'd say do your homework on people get to know individuals and target the individuals in a very personal way and i don't mean stalk them i mean uh, maybe cyber stalk them enough to look up their profile on linkedin look at them on imdb see what they've done um see if it's something that you are passionate about oh oh they worked on that tv show i'll absolutely love that well you know what that goes a long way to show some passion for the things that people have worked on and really show that you know about them as individuals do not send group emails to you know every producer and director that you can find and send one email saying i'm brilliant you should work with me here's an example of my work because i promise you they're deleting that the moment it arrives and they're not listening to anything, you know. And what I try to do in any emails that I do send, which are targeted, I'll say, you know, here's a link to some relevant content that might be relevant to what you're working on. If you only have time to listen to one thing, click on this link. You know, trying to be mindful of the fact that these people are busy, that they don't even have time for that. Um, but you know what? If you're friendly, humorous, personable, um, engaging, they might just make 20 seconds for you, 30 seconds, enough to have a listen, and it might make the difference. And of course, absolutely the same principles, everything you've just said also applies to LinkedIn messaging. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> because exactly. everything you've just said then is so relevant to LinkedIn messaging, and yet we still yeah. receive I can only describe it as spam crap through the through the yeah. digi, through the messaging system on on LinkedIn, and it's yeah. just about making just show that you've made the effort. Exactly, exactly show right. You made the effort. Yeah, brilliant. I think I think with LinkedIn, it's it's good to show, at 
be posting regularly to your community so that they can see that you've got something interesting to say. And I, I try to make sure that actually I don't do not nearly enough uh, in terms of posting on LinkedIn, I have to say that first criticism of myself. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think having some content out there and having a voice and showing positioning yourself as someone who knows what you're talking about is the first step. Don't just link in with someone and think right now that opens the door for me to send them even a personalized message because they don't know who the hell you are and they're not yeah. really that interested. They're, they're thinking that you might be useful in the future, but maybe they don't need to hear from you right now. So I think say a few things, engage with them. And then when there's a moment, you know, like keep keep thinking of them, looking at what they're doing on IMDb. I pay for an IMDb Pro account, by the way, just so that I can see all the projects that are in pre-production and I can see who's attached to them. So it gives me a heads up on what's happening in the world of film and TV. And then if I see a name that, that keeps cropping up on LinkedIn, okay, and I can attach them. Okay, now I've got some in, some reason to write to them. You know, I see you're working on blah, blah, blah. And I actually, I thought this might be really useful. Oh, and you're working with my old friend, John. You know, it's, it's just amazing how that works really well. And I find myself in in, t in 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 situations where I'm meeting TV people, pretty much always mention Andy Brierton's name because he's very senior these days. He runs his own production company called Shiny Button. He knows a lot of people and it's amazing. If there's six degrees of separation in the world, there's probably two in the world of TV and everybody knows what everyone else is doing and what's been produced, what was successful, what's commissioned, what isn't. And everybody's sort of done a commissioning role and a production role. And they've all, you know, they've all been everywhere. So uh, the name dropping is a really useful technique in the world of TV because everybody knows everyone. And the moment they've heard of someone that you've worked with, again, there's a credibility straight away in that. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we found. Brilliant. I'm loving it. Right. Okay, then. So finally, then, Paul, uh, how can people find out more about you and what's your website address and all that lovely stuff? Uh, well, uh, IMDb. I am Paul Arnold 3 on IMDb. There's a lot of Paul Arnold's in this world. <laughs> um, there's uh, I'm also on uh, we've got our, our website, which is www.bobandbarn.com. B-O-B-A-N-D-B-A-R-N.com. Um, and also we've got a Bob and Barn Facebook page, um, which is just Bob and Barn, Facebook.com forward slash Bob and Barn. So you can find us in any one of those places. Fabulous. And I'm now going to go away. And if I haven't already done so, I'm going to now follow you on Facebook and oh. become your worst nightmare spammer ever. <laughs> I can't wait for the untargeted emails that you might send me. <laughs> exactly exactly paul thanks very much for joining me today really really enjoyed it some fantastic insights and you know your passion's very very clear to see and hear and thanks for joining me today on the passions project it's been a joy thanks phil my pleasure